Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor here, uh, my name is Penny, and I am uh, the pastor here, and it is great to be with you. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning as we uh, gather for worship and as we sing to our Lord. Uh, so if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are uh, glad that we can join together in the worship of our God and our King. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage out of 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Samuel 2. Remember, 1 Samuel is a, a book in the Old Testament. It's nearer kind of to the front of our Bibles. Um, it can also be found on page 226 of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. But we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, and if you remember, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, 1 Samuel is coming at the end of the book of Judges. And some of the themes, some of the problems in the book of Judges are carrying over into the time of 1 Samuel. And so one of those problems, one of those themes that we see in the book of Judges is that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Everyone was doing right what was in their own eyes. And this morning in our passage, we're going to see how that rightness in their own eyes is actually hanging over Israel. How darkness is shadowing over Israel. We're going to see the ramifications of Israel no longer or not yet, excuse me, having a king are playing out. Remember, that's the other theme at the end of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. There was no one who was leading the people in the way that they are to go. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. In the place of worship. In the people who have been called to lead God's people. We, we don't have them leading God's people into the honoring of the Lord that he has deserved. And we don't have right worship taking place. Instead, we see sin and debauchery. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Well, as we're going to see, almost everyone. Let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel 2. We'll begin in verse 12. I'm only going to read right now through verse 26. We'll read the entirety of the chapter throughout the sermon. But for now, we'll just read through verse 26. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The customs of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. 
Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons. It is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we acknowledge our need for you. We need you to open our eyes and we need you to soften our hearts. We need you to help me so that my words would be your words. We need you to help us all so that as we focus on your word, that you would allow it to seep into our hearts. So Father, help us so that we would make much of you and that your name would be lifted high. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before there was the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the, uh, the comic book hero that had taken our country by storm was uh, the Dark Knight, Batman. Y'all remember the, the wonderful trilogy that came out about Batman a number of years ago, the Christopher Nolan series. This is one, not the old like 1950s or 60s PAL shows. That's not what I'm talking about. But the Christopher Nolan trilogy, right? We, I love that uh, series, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Before there was Marvel, Batman was the greatest superhero. And the best of those movies was The Dark Knight. I remember watching that movie and leaving the theater. Kat and I went and saw it. I was slowly drawing her into the world of comic book heroes. And we left the theater, and I remember thinking, that is the greatest superhero movie ever made. Hands down. There is no question, right? Up until that point, it was the best superhero ever made. And, and sure enough, the critics were saying that this was going to revolutionize the superhero genre that it was changing the way that we were going to watch movies and how superheroes were going to be portrayed. Sure enough, Heath Ledger was nominated for an Academy Award, and, and it was this wonderful movie. But, but what, what was great about The Dark Knight, among many, many things, was that one of the heroes in this movie was just a regular man. One of the heroes of the Dark Knight wasn't someone with special powers and he didn't drive a Batmobile and he didn't have a winged cape. No, no, he was just a regular man leading people towards goodness. I'm talking about the hero Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent in the movie was the, the district attorney and he was over the city of Gotham, the city that had been overwhelmed with crime and with evil and darkness. But, but Harvey stood before the city and he said, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. 
And in the movie, the dawn begins to come. Darkness starts to be pushed against. It starts to recede through Harvey's work. He cleans up the city and he starts locking criminals behind bars and he's making Gotham a better place. Even Bruce Wayne, the alter ego of the Cape Crusader, he says of Harvey, Gotham can feel a little more safe, a little more optimistic. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know that that optimism very quickly turned to pessimism. It very quickly turned to pessimism because this bastion of light, this one who was supposed to hold back the dark through a series of events, Harvey, this leader who had been the hero, actually becomes the villain. And it's sad to say that this is an example of art depicting life. It's an example of art depicting life because we all know too well how quickly those who have been called to lead, those who are supposed to be harbingers of truth, those who are supposed to be leading the way, they end up letting us down. I mean, it happens with such frequency, it's hard not to be cynical of those in authority, right? Leaders in our day, whether they're in government or in the entertainment industry, or even, sadly, in the church. Those people who have been given authority and are supposed to use that authority to be a blessing, to promote well-being, to seek beauty. Instead, they abuse their authority. And they do it for personal gain. And to victimize the weak and to encourage the dark. Now, this is an is not an anomaly in 21st century America. This is something that was happening even in Israel. Because what I've just described of these leaders, of these people who are supposed to be promoting what is good and beautiful and true, turning to what is wicked and evil, that's what happens in our passage. Right? That's what's happening in the passage before us. Now, so far, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've heard only about Hannah, right? She's been the focus, this pious and faithful and, and holy woman who trusted the Lord. And if 1 Samuel would have stopped at 1 Samuel 2, verse 11, would have been a short book, <laughs> but we could have easily walked away and thought, maybe this is what Israel's like. Hannah's the example of, of piety, of truth, of beauty, and so maybe Israel's like this, but... But we have verse 12. And our attention is drawn to those leading God's people, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the temple. These priests whose job it was to minister before the Lord, to lead lives of holiness and faith before God's people. And yet, instead of faithfulness, what we see is that they are faithless. I mean, look how the passage begins. In verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now that word worthless, it refers to someone who has become so wicked, so corrupt that they are now a detriment to society. In fact, this Hebrew word would later be associated with Satan himself. And it is applied to Hophni and Phinehas. They were faithless leaders. So what does their faithlessness look like? What does it look like? Well, we see it. They're self-indulgent. 
right? The priest's responsibility was to serve the Lord at the temple, to offer sacrifices. But do you see what they were doing in verses 12 through 17? As I was reading through it, maybe you're starting to think like, what? What's all this about kettles and boiling meat and raw meat and burning off the fat, right? It can seem a little strange to us. But if you remember the Levitical priests, as God took his people into the land, the Levites were not given a portion of the land. Instead, their responsibility was to serve the people at the temple. And as a way of providing for the people, God would give them a portion of the sacrifice, And so Joe Israelite would come and make his sacrifice. He would offer it up to the Lord, and the majority of it would go towards the sacrifice, but a portion of it was to be given to the priest. This is how God provided for his priests, for the leaders of the temple. But what, and if you want to read more about that, you can turn to Leviticus. Maybe you can read that a little bit later today if you'd like. But but what's happening with Hophni and Phinehas is they're not just taking the portion that was allocated to them, but they are greedy for more. They're gluttonous. They're gluttonous. This would be like the modern equivalent of of maybe the pastor reaching into the the offering plate at the end of the service to go buy filet mignon and lobster after the service. But by the way, we don't do that here. (laughs) Just, you know... In case you're wondering, visitors, uh, we don't do that. But they're taking that which does not belong to them. And they're doing it out of their own gluttony. And even when they're reminded of what they're doing is wrong, look at how they respond in verse 16. You must give it now. And if not, we will take it by force. They bring threats. And if that's not bad enough, this indulging in their gluttonous greed, they're also sexually immoral. Look at verse 22. Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Do you hear what they're doing? They're doing the very things that the pagans were doing in their worship. In this day, it would have been common in pagan worship for there to be cult prostitutes. And so sexual immorality was a regular part of pagan worship. And what, Eli, what Hophni and Phinehas are doing, these priests of the Lord, is they are taking these practices that were only being done by the pagans, and they are infusing it into the worship of God. They're engaging in sexual immorality in the place of worship. Sin, what we need, we need to see this for what it is. It's not simply a bad decision. It's not a tiny slip up. Hophni and Phinehas are outright rejecting the Lord. They're rejecting God. And what makes this rejection so bad, as though it wasn't bad enough, is what God had done for them. Pick up our reading in verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel." 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and to honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel? Do you hear what this prophet, this man of God is saying? He's reminding Eli of all the goodness that God had showered upon his family. Right? God had revealed himself to Eli's fathers. This is a reference to Aaron, the first priest. God had chosen this line to, out of all the tribes to serve him. And God had provided for the priests through this offering. God lays out all the ways he had been gracious and merciful and blessing this family. And what do they do? How do they respond? They scorn the Lord and his sacrifices. And they honor God, man above God. Did you see that? It was not only the sons, but even Eli. Yes, he rebuked his children, but when they didn't listen, we're told he honored his sons above God and engaged in their behavior. He too was fattening himself with the meat. They were rejecting God. And y'all, these were the priests. I mean, think about that. These were the people who knew the law. Hophni and Phinehas, they would have grown up going to temple. They would have grown up hearing about the law, of being instructed in the way that they were to go. They knew what was expected, and they knew better. These were the priests. Now, maybe in their minds... Maybe because they knew about God, maybe because they knew about all the things that he had done, maybe in their minds they were thinking, you know, well, well, God's going to be gracious. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Maybe they were just presumptuous upon his grace. Maybe they were thinking, you know, they could live any way they wanted because it wasn't that bad or it wasn't really hurting anyone. Maybe these are the things that were going through their minds. I imagine most of us probably wouldn't ever utter those words from our mouths. But when temptation comes, and when sin is lurking, I mean, these are the thoughts that we start to entertain, aren't they? I mean, temptation arises, well, well I, can, I, can, I can dabble with this, I can flirt with it, I can, I can entertain this a little bit more, I can do it because, because God's going to be gracious. But that's presumptuous on his grace, isn't it? Or maybe we think, you know, there's, there's this sin in my life and, and I can indulge it. I can, I can go near to it. I can engage in it because really it doesn't hurt anyone. I mean, it's just in my mind or it's hidden away in the dark and no one has to know. And so it doesn't really hurt. But it's doing damage to our souls. And we know that what we hide in the dark will one day be exposed to the light and, and it will do damage to others. Sometimes maybe when sin is lurking and temptation arises, we think, well, it's really not that bad. But friends, it really is that bad. Because when we sin, we are rejecting God and his goodwill for our lives. And what we hear of Hophni and Phinehas is that their actions revealed that they really didn't know the Lord at all. Verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Let that sink in for a minute. 
the priests, the, holy, the professional holy men of Israel, they did not know God. Y'all, that is sobering. That is sobering. They didn't know the Lord. And so that should actually invite us to ask, do we? Do we? Now, I know I'm staying here on a Sunday morning, you know, a few hundred of you, and you're sitting there, and, you know, there's other places you could be, you know, and so maybe you're running through your mind, well, of course we know the Lord, right? I mean, I could be at home drinking a cup of coffee or sleeping in or going to get brunch, and, and of course I know the Lord because I read my Bible and I've grown up in the church and I sing these songs, and of course I'm, but, but these were the priests, y'all. They were doing the very same things that we do. We need to ask ourselves that, like, where is our trust? Where is our hope? Are we presuming upon God's grace? Do we know the Lord? You know, Paul basically asked that question in 2 Corinthians when he invited the Corinthians to consider their faith, to examine their faith, and to ensure that they were walking in step with the Lord. He was saying this to a church that he knew intimately. Do we know? Where does our hope rely, rest? Where, where is our trust? In this day, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so it would be easy to wonder, like, where is the hope? Where is the hope? Has it been completely snuffed out? I mean, this is a heavy passage, you know? Like, I was talking to Kat about this morning. And it's like, it, it kind of feels a little bit like, and Hophni and Phineas went to pot. Amen. <laughs> but there is still hope. Even in the midst of the faithlessness, we see glimpses of God's faithfulness. We see glimpses of God's faithfulness. And so, friends, allow the weight to sit on your shoulders, but also have hope. Have hope, because faithlessness is not the end of the story. God's faithfulness is. And we see his faithfulness demonstrated through his servant, through three people, actually. Through his servant, through his prophet, and through his priest. We see it first through his servant, right? And we're supposed, supposed to, as we read through this, see this contrast between Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. And the contrast is stark, right? So Samuel, right, he's been given over to the Lord's service. And we don't know how long he's been here. But years have gone by, and we know years have gone by because we're told that Hannah's coming year after year, and she's bringing a new robe. So you can imagine, right, Samuel's growing. He's no longer a three-year-old, a four-year-old. He's growing, and so every year his, his robe, right, it's not reaching to his wrist, and it's not going down, and so Hannah's bringing him a new robe for him to be clothed in. And so years have gone by. Maybe he's a teenager, even into his 20s, that word boy, that Hebrew word, it doesn't necessarily mean a young child. It can actually mean something broader than that. So we're not sure, but, but regardless, Samuel had lived in this environment surrounded by wickedness for many years, and yet, what do we hear? That while the priests were serving themselves, verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. That while Hophni and Phinehas were fattening themselves, verse 21, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. 
that while Eli was honoring men, verse 26, Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. You see, what we see is that though the formal leadership of God's people is turning away from God, God has a remnant. God has won a faithful man in his midst, in the midst of his people. God is maintaining the faithfulness through Samuel. God's showing his faithfulness. And his faithfulness extends beyond that of his servant Samuel to his prophet. And the prophet I'm referring to shows up in verse 27. The man of God. And we're not known. We don't get his name. We don't know his name, but we do know he's a prophet. And the reason we know he's a prophet is because there's some clues. That phrase, a man of God, it's used 71 times in the Old Testament to refer specifically to a prophet. And then we have the introduction to his speech in verse 27. Thus the Lord has said, that is like prophetic code. This is giving you a heads up. This is a prophetic declaration. A prophet has arrived. He's speaking on behalf of God. And what does he say? Well, we already heard portions of it, but then pick up in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares... Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be a man, an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Do you hear the prophet's words? This declaration of judgment that is coming on the house of Israel. Right in verse 20, God says that he will lightly esteem those who despise him. So notice the wordplay, right? Notice the wordplay. They are getting fat off of the sacrifice, and yet God, how does he see them? In his eyes, they are light. They are of little account. They are lightly esteemed. In verse 36, they will beg for money just to purchase bread. So those who were gluttonous bullies are turned into beggars. And the strongest words of all, because of their sin, Hophni and Phinehas will die. You see, God is showing his faithfulness through this prophet because he's showing that he takes sin and his word very, very seriously. That even those who have been called to lead are not outside of God's justice and they are not above his law. God is showing that despite the failures of these leaders, he is still faithful in his ways. And his purposes will not be thwarted by man. God is showing his faithfulness through the prophet's declaration. He's showing his faithfulness through his servant, but finally God shows his faithfulness through his priest. We see this in verse 35. In the place of faithless, Hophni and Phinehas, God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, when we hear this faithful priest, our minds might run to Samuel. He's the faithful priest. And there's no doubt that Samuel is going to do priestly things. He's going to anoint the king. But Samuel is actually called a judge. He judged Israel. And we also know from 1 Samuel chapter 8 that actually Samuel's children turned away from the Lord. And so his house isn't the one that's established forever. It isn't sure. And so we have to understand this, pro, this, um, this priest as being someone other than Samuel. And so the way we need to understand this is, is by seeing this prophecy about a faithful priest in two parts. You see, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we have prophetic declaration that finds its fulfillment in an immediate fulfillment and then a greater and later fulfillment. Not always, but sometimes we see this. And that's what's happening here. You see, there is a priest that's going to come after Hophni and Phinehas, after Eli. His name is Zadok. His name is Zadok. He's going to be a priest under David. And most commentators think that that is the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. Because Zadok and his line are going to be faithful in serving David and David's line long after Zadok lives and dies. He is the immediate fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of this faithful priest who will serve forever is Jesus. It is Christ. And that's what Israel needs. And friends, that's what we need. We need not just any other leader. But we need the faithful priest who demonstrates his faithfulness to God. And that's who Jesus is. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the great high priest over the house of God. But he is unlike any other priest that came before him because Jesus is our faithful priest who makes atonement not through grain or the blood of bulls, but who makes atonement through his very blood. And what is amazing about Christ is that he's not only our faithful priest, but he's also our faithful servant. He's the faithful servant in the book of Luke. We're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. It's picking up the language that was applied to Samuel and now is applied to Jesus. He is the greater servant. He's our faithful servant and our faithful prophet because Jesus is the one who declares God's word and he keeps it perfectly. He is the faithful servant and prophet and priest who succeeded where all else have failed. Who in the face of faithlessness, Christ has been faithful. And so friends, that's why we can be assured. We can be assured that though man may fail and leaders may be faithless, that though it may seem as though darkness hangs over God's people, that the dawn has come. The dawn has come because Christ has come. The dawn has come. It has broken into the darkness and the light is so bright that the darkness will not overcome it. That's what we're told in John. That the dawn has come because Jesus has come, the faithful one who has shown his faithfulness in the place of faithless leaders. And so, friends, we can have hope and we can have assurance that through Christ, God has given us a faithful leader, a faithful servant, 
a faithful prophet and priest, we can have hope. And so let us give thanks for that hope that he gives us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or to the devices of man, but that you have sent your Son, who is our faithful priest, who has gone to the cross, who has given his life, whose blood was shed so that our sins would be forgiven, so that our faithlessness would be forgiven. And so we praise you and we worship you and ask that you would help us this day and all of our days to follow you, our faithful king, our faithful prophet, our faithful priest. Help us, we pray, so that you would be made much of and so that we would grow as your people. And we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said together, amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.